Welcome to a brand new episode of Front End Happy Hour. This is episode 34, and we are joined by Lori Voss, the COO and former CTO at MPM. MPM is also known as Node Package Manager and has been an important tool in the JavaScript and Node community to help engineers share their code. In today's episode, we'll be discussing MPM and find out more information from Lori. Before we get started, Lori, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Hi, everybody. What I do is, uh, well, I used to run the engineering department, and now my job is yelling at accountants and lawyers, because that's what COOs do, apparently. But basically, I'm a web developer, which is uh, why I was pleased to be invited on this podcast. I like thinking about the web. I like making the web better. I like the fact that anybody can make the web bigger. That's been the sort of driving force behind my career. And my beverage of choice for happy hour is Mexican cola. What is Mexican cola for those who are not familiar? Coke in the United States is made with high fructose corn syrup, which changes the flavor and makes it worse if you drink a lot of Mexican Coke like I do. So uh, if you buy if you can buy Coke in glass bottles, it comes from Mexico and it's made with actual actual sugar because it's not subject to the corn lobby. It's the cane sugar. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I'm not familiar. <laughs> not everybody lives in California with yeah. the, the yeah. cool. Sure, we were actually just talking about that. Is it's really easy to buy in San Francisco, but if you were to buy it like on the East Coast or something, it's really really hard to find. In New York, you can get kosher cola. Kosher cola, it's exactly the same, ex- apparently, except that corn syrup is not kosher for some reason, and cane sugar is, so it's just, you know, oh. soda made with cane sugar. No, wait, 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 corn syrup's not kosher? Don't ask me what they're doing to All the Jewish syrup. people would never be able to eat anything. <laughs> it's like, it's in everything. Literally in everything, yeah. I don't know. Except for Mexican Coke. Except for Mexican Coke. <laughs> Blessed by a rabbi. <laughs> All right, let's also go around the table and give brief introduction of today's panelists. Augustus, you want to start it off? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Augusta Soon, and I'm a front-end engineer at Evernote. I'm Derek Showers, I'm a software engineer at LinkedIn. I'm Marge Julian. I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix. Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front-end Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that, if it's mentioned at all in the podcast, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Dependency. 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 So if any of us say the word dependency or dependencies of any kind, we will all take a drink. All right, so let's get started. I'd like to hear why is MPM such an important tool? I would like to hear everybody else tell me why MPM is an important tool. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that he's putting it on us first. Uh, I would say in any, any language that hopes to be mature, you need some sort of package manager. Like that's just the evolution of every language. Ruby has whatever Ruby has. What is Ruby's? Ruby has. Gems, yeah, Ruby Gems, Python has. How do you not know that? (laughs) I really should. It's spelled differently though. You should like switch languages just to be like, yeah, my name's Gem, I have a lot of gems. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. No, 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 no. For the record, I do not like Ruby. I think it's an ugly language, but Java has something. Maven. Maven, thank you. Um, Python's got PyPy, Perl has got uh, CPAN, obviously. Is it? No, no, it has pip. PyPy is something different, right? I mean, I'm not a Python expert. I think pip is the thing that installs from PyPy. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, too. All right. All right. Well, yeah. (laughs) We're too slow. We're not Python Python engineers. That's for backendhappyhour.com. Yeah, but I mean, if you're going to have a mature language, you need to have a way of sharing packages. And NPM jumped in and did that for us. And it made Node like a real thing. Which is awesome too, because it comes with Node. When you're installing Node, you have NPM, and it has allowed us to share a lot of great packages and code with various projects. Does anybody at the table use NPM only for front-end stuff and not for Node at all? I use it for both. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say one or the other. So one of the things that we've discovered that's changed about NPM's user base in the last couple of years is that most people use who use NPM are not using it to write Node at all. Uh, only about... of NPM's users only write Node in it, uh, and the other 80% are writing, doing front-end code most of the time or some of the time, and 40% do it, do only front-end, and they have nothing to do with Node. They don't consider themselves Node users. NPM is just the tool that they use to put JavaScript together on the front-end, and it really changes the way that we have to think about ourselves as a tool because we can't assume 
that people are comfortable on the command line. We can't assume that people care about you know, common JS modules at all. Uh, they live in ES6 land and they live in the world of imports and they live in, you know, they rely on Babel and Webpack and they just don't care about Node at all. That's really interesting. I never would have guessed that, especially that big of a percentage. Yeah, the reputation of the tool is taking a long time to sort of like follow along to the, the what the user base is actually doing. One thing I, I think that you guys already are well along the way to make it easy on the command line. Um, I have recently done a lot of iOS development, so we use CocoaPods a lot, and the difference is maybe I'm just used to NPM, but the difference between it is night and day, in my opinion. I mean, like, even if, it, like, for instance, CocoaPods is like pod, pod install and pod update, and really no one knows what the difference is between the two. Like, <laughs> if you look, it's like it's all over Stack Overflow, like, and I don't even think that CocoaPods knows what the difference is all the time. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, it's, uh, but with NPM, it's, it's very easy to use. Cool. Yeah, CocoaPods is interesting because they are a package manager without a registry. Yeah, uh, the co- all of CocoaPods is hosted on GitHub, yeah. and it's it's sort of become a thing for GitHub. They're like, why does your package manager rely on our service being free forever? This is a strange arrangement that you've put into your package manager, is that you just like you know siphon off our bandwidth and our engineering time because it's you know it's a busy service. Uh, so like there's all kinds of like you know. Single single repo hacks that they've had to put in for the CocoaPods repo because it's just so high traffic. How would you define it being as an important tool? Um, since a couple of us give me examples. Um, well, I was I was kind of setting you up for for that reveal, which was basically that I think most people still think of it as a Node tool, but it's primarily a front end tool. It's a tool that people use to put websites together, um, and there's a bunch of other stuff that sort of like is so closely associated with NPM now that people don't think of them as being separate. Like, they just think of, like, you know, NPM, Babel, and Webpack are the first three things I install to get anything done on the front end, and they move forward from there. There's lots of other stuff. There's, you know, there's Closure Compiler and Rollup and all of the other ones, but, you know, that's where the bulk of stuff is right now. And that's where we're seeing it be useful. Like, it's not, it's not the Node Package Manager. In fact, we don't even call it that anymore. It's just NPM, the letters. And so that's, it's, it's interesting watching that change what we do and what we focus on and stuff like that. Even the first time I used NPM for, um, like for front-end code, it was like Browserify and using it with NPM, I was like blown away. It's like you've got your common JS modules, and you're like, this is amazing. Being able to actually package your front-end code like that and being able to just leverage it is huge. Yeah. It's super useful in like a large project. The other thing, uh, speaking of large projects, the other thing that uh, we try and push people to do more often is like lots of people use NPM just for NPM install, but the scripts and especially the, the lifecycle hooks, they're really useful, especially if like the larger your team gets, the more uh, sort of shared knowledge of like, how do I run the tests? How do I you know, get the dev server started? What do I do to rebuild the, the flow? Having that you know, built into the package so you can just go you know, NPM run dev and your dev server starts up. And you know that that's linked to the current version of the code because it's committed at the same time as everything else. You're never like, oh, I'm running the dev server for the old version, but the code has changed and it doesn't work anymore. That's a huge saving for a big team, right? Because you know, every time you change how the tests work, you, know, you have to go and send an email or have a meeting and tell every, all 50 people on your team, how does this thing work? Uh, and you don't, right? You just do NPM run test. And then you have documentation that gets outdated, and at least you yeah. know that you're always running the right command. We, we like to say that the, the goal of NPM is to make you have fewer meetings and talk to fewer humans, which sort of <laughs> reflects, it reflects very much the ethos of its founders. <laughs> like, oh God, we never want to have another meeting again. Let's just automate everything. Laura, you're on a podcast talking to other humans right now. I know, isn't that weird? MP <laughs> <laughs> installed this podcast. <laughs> Interested to know, like, it's pretty much a question for everyone. Do you use NPM either at your companies or for personal use or both? Definitely both, yeah. like 100%. Although at our company, we did switch over to Yarn, or well, which is just built on top of NPM. But mm-hmm. yeah, I de- definitely use it for both. And actually, I'll, I'll kind of agree, like, I have seen like a lot of front end people use it for front end, and NPM has been like super invaluable in just like bootstrapping people to like get up to speed or like just like hey, like just NPM install this, run this generator and you get this application that's just all built for you and you can kind of explore and learn that way. And sometimes that's like better for some people, like they just have like a working solution and they can just kind of step through to see how it works. Absolutely. 
Uh, it's funny because a lot of the front-end devs who use NPM and aren't Node users, they're sort of weirdly sort of apologetic about it. They're like, you know, we meet them at conferences and they're like, oh, I don't, not really a Node developer. I just use NPM to get Webpack going. And I'm like, that's a valid use case. It's okay. You don't yeah. have to apologize for how you use our tool. Yeah, we use it at Netflix quite a bit for lots of different packages that we share internally, externally, yeah, throughout the company. It's, it's been so helpful. How many people at the table use private packages, not just open source ones? Uh, we do, yeah. Yeah, we, like, we'll have some public ones, but we'll also have a lot of private ones too that just are for internal use only. Yeah. Cool. How can companies take advantage of NPM better? <laughs> I'd love to know Lori's thoughts on that, because I mean, I think there's a lot of things that, it took me a while to even realize that there's a lot of things out there available that NPM offers for companies that can actually make it a lot easier and better and more secure for them. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Thank you for the softball. Um, <laughs> the value of NPM is uh, for collaboration. As soon as you, the more people you have working on the same piece of software, the more valuable NPM gets to you. So as soon as you have pieces of software within your organization that more than one person needs to work on, the same effect comes into play. So, uh, you know, you could, you know, check some modules directly into your Git repo. You could use private Git dependencies. You could, or you could just go, you know, npm publish dash dash access equals restricted, and you've got a private package, and it works exactly like an ordinary package, and you can version it like a package, and you can install it like a package, and it's just really easy. So that is, that's the primary thing. That's the way that NPM supports open source is uh, we will give you private packages if you pay. So there's private packages as a SaaS. You can just sign up on the website and you get them. Um, and there's also NPM Enterprise, uh, which is for bigger companies who are often paranoid and you know, want to have the thing running on their own hardware. Or they'll have uh, features that only, that only enterprises care about, like uh, you know, single sign-on, so it'll, you know, it'll work with your LDAP or your SAML or whatever the hell it is that you use inside of your company, uh, so you don't have to maintain users separately. But yeah, so that's the goal of NPM as a company is to make the registry run forever, and the way that we decided to do that is to wrap a company around the open source registry, uh, and so that's what the open source, that's what the company does. That's awesome, no, and I think there's a lot of benefits, and I'm sure a lot of companies take advantage of the enterprise or even just having private ones, and that's similar to GitHub. Definitely in the way that they have is like, you pay if you want private, it's, and that's great. It's an extremely familiar business model. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I should mention that we do is uh, on the enterprise side is we also, we have a security plugin from the NSP who, NPM Enterprise comes with like your own sort of mini version of the NPM website. Uh, and the NSP plugin like shows you which packages have known security vulnerabilities. Uh, which is a really neat feature that we're eventually going to put into the SaaS somehow. Uh, but at the moment, it exists only on NPM Enterprise, and it's a big selling point for companies because they're always like, how did this happen? We need to know. Yeah, we, we have that in Netflix. Yeah, because people, they forget the dependencies of dependencies. Cheers. 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 That wasn't very nice. Nice <laughs> <laughs> saw what you did there. It's like an easy security hole, right? Because you, you forget that whatever you're relying on has other things that it relies on. That's, and then they have things they rely on, and just, like, who's going to look into that? So you need the kind of plugins. <laughs> left pad. All right, yeah. Augustus brought up left pad. And that's like, that is, if familiar with that, that was a big one where it was a lot of things. Babel was actually probably one of the biggest projects that relied on left pad, and that was huge. Is Lori, you want to add to, like, I, I know you were involved in this, so I, I don't want to try and talk to it. What, what is left pad? And, and what's the drama around left pad? LeftPad uh, represented uh, an inflection point in the size of the registry. Usually, in NPM's life up until that point, name disputes were handled by a very informal process that was basically, Isaac will figure it out. Uh, so name disputes happen you know, when two people want the same package name, or somebody took a package name and a company turns out to own the package name. 99% of the time, and this is still true, uh, we sort it out with our name dispute policy, which is literally just email each other. Somebody email the other person and say, hey, can I have your name? Or, hey, your name is confusingly similar to our company. Could you put a line in the readme that says you are not our company? This is still true, and 99% of the time it's resolved peacefully. And you know, the bigger you get, the, the thing that happens 0.1% of the time that used to happen never when you were a thousand people happens all the time when you're a million people. Uh, and now we're seven and a half million people. So this was the first time this had happened when 
somebody's reaction to a company saying, hey, that's the name of our company, was not, I want to keep it, can I change the, you know, can I put a line in the readme? It wasn't, okay, have the name. It was, fuck you, fuck the horse you rode in on, fuck everything about <laughs> you. It was like nuclear wasteland. And it had just never happened before. And as a result, uh, our usual policy of like, okay, well, I guess the company should have the name. That was a bad call. We shouldn't have made that call. And it resulted in him taking down all of his packages, including uh, LeftPad, which turned out to be the important one. And it just blew up web development for like three hours and everybody got super mad at us. Yeah, so we, uh, we made a bunch of, of, of changes um, as a result of that. So one is that unpublishing stuff that's older than 24 hours now requires an email to support. So what he did could never be done. And also, we're just a lot more careful about giving anybody a name. If, like, nearly all of the time. If you have a name, it's your name now. Uh, unless literally somebody shows up with lawyers uh, and, and says, we're going to sue the hell out of you. Uh, which happens more often than you would imagine. Is that something you deal with more now, being the COO? As a COO, it's kind of my primary thing, is I fend off lawsuits who don't, from people who don't understand how copyright and trademarks and software works. Like, <laughs> we spend a lot of time paying a lawyer to explain to other dumber lawyers how software works. They're like, my favorite one was, was uh, there's a magazine in France called uh, L'Express, and they went to Google and they DMCA'd every single package in the registry that had the word express in it. <laughs> All right, we know that that would be a problem. They took out the entire express ecosystem and I was like, you can't do that. There's more than one thing in the world called express. So yeah, I had to like, you know, file an official like response by the DMCA process going, no, this is stupid and everything about this is stupid. And they, Google eventually agreed and gave everything back. Uh, that's an interesting one, yeah, because, I mean, Node Express, huge Node framework that has a lot of dependencies. Hey! Cheers! <laughs> Reminds me of Monster Cable. You guys all familiar with Monster? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. Monster Cable is like one of the most litigious companies. Like the HDMI cables? Yeah, they yeah. sue everybody. I, really, Monster. I, I used to work at Circuit City and had to sell them. And it was so hard to sell them because it was like $50 for a USB cable or something. But it was gold plated. I really like the idea that there's somebody somewhere who paid like $3,000 for a USB signal and is going, oh, it's so much warmer. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Or ten thousand for a gold Apple Watch, or right? Something. Oh, right, I forgot Apple did that. <laughs> yeah. The gold Apple Watch. When the App Store first launched, there was an app um, called oh, I Am I Rich. Rich. Yeah. Uh, and it was like somebody. Oh, oh, I remember that. Somebody had made, created an app that you know he he just set it to the maximum price the App Store would, would allow, which was nine hundred ninety nine dollars, and it didn't do anything except show a little rotating golden thing that said I am rich. And it was like 10 people bought it or something. Right, he made yeah. like 10,000 bucks yeah. off of that thing. That's amazing. I wonder if they bought it knowing what it would do. I mean, I don't think he misrepresented. He was like, this is, clear. This, is, this is just a status symbol to show that you can set $999 on fire for fun. Okay. Change log. Rotated. So like DLCs and stuff. It's like, oh, you want the add-on? That's another not <laughs> I know we're off topic now, but I think I read some stat that, oh, you know those free-to-play games? Like, that's most of the games right. now. Their ecosystem's only supported by like 1% of users, something like that. So it's, it's like 1% of users spending like 20, 30, $40 sometimes. You know, you know the industry term for them? Whales. Whales. <laughs> there's lots of little fish, and then there's the whales who eat everything. I learned a lot about really terrible business models when I, when my second job out of college, I worked at a ringtone company. Oh, <laughs> man, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, we basically stole little kids' lunch money. Like, that was the business model of that guy. <laughs> like, lots of really big, bright ads with big text saying, free ringtone, with a little asterisk next to it, and the asterisk says, after you get your free ringtone, we're going to send you text messages until you tell us to stop. And every time we send you a text message, it'll cost you three bucks. 
So the average cost of a free ringtone was thirty-five dollars. Whoa! Oh, that's so close. For somebody's parent, somebody's parent to realize. Right, exactly. Yeah. It was literally their lunch money. They were like, "Oh, I don't get to eat today <laughs> <laughs> or the next thirty days." So, uh, uh, Lori, what's what's new in NPM five? Well, practically everything is new in NPM five. When Yarn came out, they were like, "Oh, it's got you know, like it's deterministic and it's got you know." better caching and blah, 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 blah. And like, they listed a bunch of features, all of which NPM already had, and, but they, they did have one thing that we didn't have, which was speed. They had, it was a lot faster than NPM4, and we got the message. We were like, okay, y'all said you wanted it to be fast. Uh, so the CLI team um, have been kicking ass and taking names for the last six months. The funniest part of it is, it didn't actually involve changing anything that they that they were doing, right? They'd set out like an 18-month roadmap 18 months ago, and they were like, and in you know May of 2017, we'll release NPM5, and it will be much faster. And we were like, okay, <laughs> like in May of 2017, they're going to release NPM5, and it's going to be much faster. Like the existence of Yarn just makes it look like we reacted. But yeah, we completely changed the caching layer, so the caching layer is a lot more resilient and it doesn't corrupt itself anymore, so it's way faster. Isaac went on vacation for a month, uh, and when he came back, he'd rewritten Node Tar. <laughs> so, like, the two things that it does are it downloads packages and it unzips them, and that is the two things that we both, both of those things are much, much faster now. We also made a big change, which is that we made it um, deterministic by default. So that's what, that's what Yarn does, is it has the Yarn lock file. So now uh, NPM5 has the package lock JSON, uh, which is always there and always on. Uh, so because it's not constantly checking the server to see if there are new versions of the package available, it's just downloading what's in package lock. Uh, it's a lot faster for that reason as well. So the whole thing, like the benchmarks are looking really, really good. So we're looking forward to releasing it sometime this month. That was going to be my next question. When can we get it? <laughs> <laughs> you can get the beta right now. You can npm install npm5. Nice. How oh, meta. <laughs> yeah. So meta. And uh, yeah, when the beta's done, it'll, it'll just, you know, npm install npm and you'll get it. I, I guess like you, you already brought up yarn, but uh, how does that affect npm? Obviously it's still piggybacking off npm. How do you see that? Is Yarn a competitor? Is it just pushing you guys to be faster? How do you see that? Yarn is, is open source working the way that open source is supposed to work, right? Yarn was a bunch of people looking at NPM's feature set 18 months ago and going, we don't like this, we think this should be more important than that thing, we think you know, this should be changed. And they put their money where their mouth is, right? Like they put a bunch of really good developers on it and they produced a completely respectable piece of software that solves Facebook's needs really, really well and you know, showed us a couple of things. We were like, wow, that is a lot faster. We should probably do that by default. I was talking about how NPM is, is a front-end tool. Yarn is the crystallization of the fact that NPM's user base is front-enders now and not back-enders, because back-enders don't have this problem the same way that, that, that front-enders do. NPM's pattern of, of using semantic, depend, uh, semantic versioning to pull in new versions of stuff, that works really well if what you're doing is writing a library. And all of NPM's features were geared towards library authors and not towards people who were like putting a website together and they just wanted to make sure that it worked and could deploy the same way every time. And Yarn was like, no, that's what we want to do. Not only do we want to do it, we want to do it all of the time. Like Yarn is the fact that uh, the majority of, of um, people who use NPM are front-end developers is evidenced by how popular Yarn got. So we got the hint. We were like, okay, we're going to move the dial from library authors to front-end developers. And so, you know, deterministic locking by default it is. The, the funny thing is there's uh, four other um, NPM alternative clients on the registry already. And uh, somebody pointed out that if you take like a, a stacked list of our priorities like if you you know if you said okay number one is backwards compatibility number two is stability number three is speed number four is you know something else each of those other alternatives can be produced by taking one other thing and moving it to the top mm -hmm. so one of them is like i only want depend i only want stability one of them is i only want speed one of them is i only want determinism you know and it's really interesting because people built every possible alternative to npm and put it on npm yeah how does that work with like JSPM or something like that, they're still using your servers, right? They absolutely are. So how does yeah how does that work? Because they're just piggybacking off of your bandwidth and like you have a business to run as well. I know it's open source and everything, but still. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, somebody using on like the registry is the thing that 
we spend all the money on and private packages are the thing that supports it uh, and all of those package managers can use private packages as well so you know if you want to use an alternative package man uh, an alternative client to talk to our registry we don't mind uh, it'd be good if you paid but you know like that's true of everybody the worst case is if a bunch of people use yarn then like facebook is take is lowering our support load because people will send issue tickets to facebook instead of us and that's fine the first couple of months of watching Yarn's issue tracker were really funny because all of the bugs that, you know, all of our oldest and like most intractable bugs showed up on Yarn's issue tracker as well. I was like, that's just a bug with JavaScript. <laughs> like you can't, you can't fix that by yelling at the package manager. You couldn't fix it by yelling at NPM and you can't fix it by yelling at Yarn. Like undefined is just sometimes not a function. Like, <laughs> Wait, now that you're here, an expert of NPM, can you explain once and for all the difference between a caret tilde as far as like locking down semantic versioning? Because like it's so wrong all over the internet and people just... Oh man, every time I try and explain this, I get it wrong. So... What are we going to do with that? Alright, so the number one thing to understand about semantic versioning is there's three numbers. The first number is the major version, the second number is the... Is the uh, a minor version and the third number is the patch version. So patch versions are supposed to be safe. Minor versions are supposed to bring in features but be backwards compatible. And major versions are supposed to be breaking. But, and this is the big exception, if the first number is zero, those rules are suspended. If the first number is zero, then the second number can be a breaking change and the third number can be a feature. It's yeah. weird and confusing. So nobody understands 0.x versions always confuse people because they don't wait work the way that people are expecting them to work. So like 99% of the time when people are like, oh, carrot until they aren't working the way that I'm, that I'm expecting them to work, it's because you're in a 0x version and it's not working the way you're supposed to. So let's ignore 0x versions. Start with version 1, which is what NPM does now. NPM like always defaults to version 1 point yes. something. Tilde will bring in only patch versions. Carrot will bring in patch versions and feature versions. And if you don't want any of those, you can just, uh, you can also do just 3.x, uh, which is the same as saying anything that starts with three is fine. Gotcha. People will bend over backwards to make sure that their 1.0 version is like special and magnificent, and we are trying to stomp that out. I'm like, if Chrome can be on version 58, then your package can be on version 2.x after the second version, it's fine. Sure. Like yeah. integers are free. Like, we will, we will not run out of them. I like that you're starting at 1.0.0, because then you're right. Now you can follow that standard of like, okay, well, you can slowly move that integer, and that's how you should follow it. Yeah, the only, the only time I think somebody should be using a 0.x version is when literally you've never published it before. If you're just still putting it together and you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to use this, call it a 0.x version. And that's community shared within your small team or something, but not publicly. I think, I think the, it should never leave your laptop. As soon as it leaves your laptop, even if it's just going to somebody across the room, that's when you hit 1.0. All right, fair. I, I like that. I'm, I'm good with that. I can totally follow that rule. It's even if like Gem and I are creating a package and I start it, I will, if I'm passing it to him, I should put it to 1.0. Yep. And that's fair. I like that. <laughs> And that's an excellent segue into my favorite NPM command, which is NPM init. It's how you start a package and it does everything for you. It's like, what's your name? What's your GitHub? What's the package number? It does all that for you. That's my favorite. NPM, NPM. init has a bunch of uh, fun hidden features as well. So if you put in your NPM RC um, or you can just run NPM set init.author.name and that will set it so you don't have to type it in every time. It will just know. Also, author.email, stuff like that. If you run npm init in a folder that is already a git repo, it will set the git repo for yeah. you. Yeah. If you've already got a node modules folder when you run npm init, it will put uh, all of the existing packages into your dependencies. Cheers. Cheers. And the, 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 the most sort of weird and bizarre one is that there's a, if you put a file called uh, npm init.js into your home directory, there's a uh, sort of package format called Promzard that you can follow that will change what npm init does. 
So you can programmatically redefine what npm init does. So if you at Netflix are like, every time we run npm init, we want to run, we want to add a test stanza and it looks this way, or you're like, I want to add, you know, these standard lifecycle hooks, whatever that is, you tell npm init that those, you know, npm init JS what those things are, and everybody who generates a package at, N at Netflix will automatically get that stuff in their package without having to remember to put it in. And we set that in the RC file? Yeah, you put it, you put it in your, uh, you put that. You have to copy that file to everyone's home directory, yeah. and then every time they run npm init, it follows the rules. It's pretty awesome. Did not know that. You can like add questions. Like it's completely interactive, so you can be like, you know, you know, type in a password or generate some entropy or like, you know, make a call out to our web API to find out what this thing should be like. It's very, very customizable. Larry needs to come to like Netflix and hang out and just tell <laughs> us like. <laughs> I feel like it's like Git, you know, like we all use a little bit of Git and we all use a little bit of NPM, but there's like this iceberg underneath that we just know nothing about. We just never... I should Git. I never feel like I know it. I'll learn something new every day. Same with NPM. Like yeah. I didn't... I think it's especially true of NPM because NPM's user base is growing so fast. Like everyone, you know, shows if everyone's ever followed me on Twitter, they'll see this graph that I point that I tweet all the time, which is like this exponential curve. The thing about exponential curves is that everything happens at the far end. So it's always true that something like 50% of NPM's users have been using it for less than six months. It's just never-ending September in there because people show up and, you know, in ever-grading numbers every single day. So every single day there's more people who are like, what is this thing? How does it work? Like we're always having to teach people the, new, the, the basic stuff. And it's going to be that way for a while. One thing I wanted to mention too, just to, to go back to the semantic versioning, semver.org. Have you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so great. Maybe a lot. Maybe some of our listeners haven't used that, but that's like a good explanation of what you said, but like very detailed. So, I highly recommend checking that Semver. out. Semver.org is a really great way to under, to discover that not only did you not understand how Semver works, <laughs> that you disapprove. You're like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> So, Lori, what can we expect for the future of NPM? There's a bunch of cool stuff coming. So one of the things that we've noticed is that while NPM is NPM our, our SaaS offering, it's good if you've got a team of like four or five people, like any, any t team more than that begins to get a lot of value out of it. If there's just one of you, like having a private package is not that different from having it in your Git repo. So we're going to add a bunch of insights and stuff into the packet, into the web interface. So that stuff starts becoming more useful, even if that's all you've got. So instead of, you know, uploading a package that is your app, which would be kind of inconvenient, you'll just like authorize your GitHub repo and NPM will know what packages you're using and then it will start telling you stuff about them. It'll be like, oh, this one's got a security vulnerability. Oh, this one is closely associated with this other one. Maybe you should install it as well. Like the other dependencies or? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in general, like, you know, we'll do like visualizations of Webpack stuff. So it'll be like, this is how big this thing will be on the front end. And, you know, we'll tell you differences between versions. It's like, you added a dependency to this thing, which made it twice as big on the front end. Are you sure you don't want to roll that back? That kind of stuff, which we think people are going to find useful. And again, front-end developers are going to find more useful. We're going to start, like, focusing on the idea that people are mostly using this for front-end. And then on the completely other side, one of the reasons that package lock and yarns uh, locking by default are so popular is because people are trying to get reproducible installs. But the thing about a reproducible install where you have to install a thousand packages is that it still takes really long, even if it's completely reproducible. Like, why are you installing a thousand packages if you knew that it was exactly those 1,000 packages? You could have done that in advance and got all of the build steps done in advance. So we're going to do that. Um, there's going to, there's at some point, don't ask me when, there's going to be two new NPM commands, NPM store and NPM fetch. So when you've built a good node modules folder and your app is ready to go, you run npm store and it will take that exact folder and turn it into one file and store that on our servers. And then when you deploy, you just run npm fetch. And one request, one second, it'll be down and your app will be ready to go. It'll be orders of magnitude faster. That's awesome. Suck on that yarn. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing about having, you know, both the client and the server is like that's you can make things, you, you can really think back to the beginning of like, what is the actual problem people were trying to solve and just solve it better. So we really hope that that's going to make a lot of people's lives easier and also, you know, maybe persuade a few more people to pay. Can I ask what's the difference between that and shrinkwrap? So shrinkwrap is just, shrinkwrap is a lock file. So package lock and shrinkwrap in NPM5 are the same. 
they're the same format. The difference between a package log and a shrink wrap is that a package log doesn't get published. It assumes that it's going to stay in your Git repo and be part of your deployment process, whereas shrink wrap assumes that it is going to be published. And what you're trying to do is make sure that somebody installing that gets exactly the same list of packages. The thing about a shrink wrap is that it's not really a good idea. So if you imagine you had you were installing 10 packages and all of them had a shrink wrap. So it would eliminate NPM's ability to deduplicate things in a smart way, right? Because one of them would be using version 1.1.1, one would be using version 1.1.2, and because they're both shrink-wrapped, it can't move those around and say 1.1.2 would be fine for both of you. So shrink-wraps in production have the effect of uh, making node modules folders a lot bigger. So in general, we're just like an NPM 5, we're going to be like, that was not a great idea, and you probably shouldn't use it anymore and we're gonna, you know, package lock is the way forward. But store and fetch are very different, right? Shrink wrap is just a list of the packages and you still have to install them. Store and fetch are, the whole node modules folder is gonna be one big tar file and it's gonna be on the server. So you won't be downloading anything except one file, which will be everything in your app. That's very cool too. Yeah. It's just one file like specific to your app and that's it. Yep. We can go on all day. I have so many yeah. like questions. <laughs> Actually, kind of to build on that, um, I know we talked a lot about deterministic versus non-deterministic. Maybe could you elaborate a little more on that of like what that means? Uh, so there's a certain amount of FUD that goes around um, about how whether or not NPM is deterministic. For those who are not like familiar with the, the computer science version of the term, deterministic just means it should be the same every time, or you know the same input leads to the same output. It is not always true, or it was not always true in earlier versions of NPM that you would get the same output every single time. A lot of that was just straight up bugs, but some of it was design flaws. The way shrink wrap used to work made it possible to create a race condition between two versions of shrink wrap. There used to be this thing called they were sibling dependencies. I've forgotten the actual name of them now because we deprecated oh, them. Cheers to dependencies. Oh, there we go. <laughs> cheers. And so they were, you know, instead of being you know, a sub package, they were like, this is a sibling package to you. Uh, and that created dependency hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which made it sometimes impossible to install a package, far less deterministic. So in NPM4, we got most of those out of the way. In NPM5, they're pretty much, uh, they're pretty much gone. It's still possible to create race conditions if you are trying to create race conditions, but it doesn't happen very much anymore. It's like the one thing you wish people knew more about NPM. Like there's this cool command that it's built in and nobody ever uses it, it would change your life. <laughs> there's, again, it comes back to the, the fact that most people are, are total newbies with NPM. 20% of NPM's users don't know there's a registry. <laughs> they think the packages come from the sky or they think the packages are on GitHub. Lots of people think the packages are on GitHub. They're like, NPM is a tool that downloads packages from GitHub for me. And I'm like, no, no, we have dozens of people and, you know, millions of dollars worth of servers. <laughs> but that is possible, right? It is possible to point. You can, to right, but it's not yeah. by default, yeah. right? Like, uh, so I wish more people knew that. And the other thing is I wish more people knew that NPM is a company. There's tons and tons of NPM users who are just like, you know, it's the way the analogy I use is imagine that you use LS every day to list directories and somebody was like, did you know there's an LS Inc? <laughs> You'd be like, why is there an LS Inc? How do people make money listing directories? What's going on? Like that's people's reaction to discovering that NPM Inc exists. So yeah, those are the two things. I'd be like, hey, there's a registry and also you can pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lori, a question for you on the topic of different NPM commands. Oh, also, I want to point out that uh, it supports typos. Did people, did anyone know this? Yes. yes. So, I'm notorious for typos, and when someone realized I had written in a readme a typo, they just copy pasted and it still worked. It was magic. <laughs> it supports, um, what is it? Not install, but it's I S N isn't, isn't all. Unlike Git, that makes you feel stupid. Is like, did you mean Git commit? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. it just does it for yeah. Yeah, like yes, I meant it. You said, did you mean it? So <laughs> there's there's also a phantom command. So npm update is a thing, but a lot of people sort of, you know, sort of with a Berenstein Bears thing, they sort of imagine that there's a command called npm upgrade, and they kept running it and being confused when okay. it didn't work. So now if you run npm upgrade, it's an alias to npm update. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, so on the topic of commands, some of us are curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners are too, about the difference between npm dash dash save and dash dash save dev. Uh, this is just a transparent opportunity to get me to say the word dependencies. <laughs> Good job, Marcus. Well done. Old beta room. We're getting a little sober. Yeah. The save will put it into your dependencies, and save dev will put it into your dev dependencies. Cheers, so This is going to be a really heavy paragraph. You may want to hold back by the time I get to the end of this explanation. <laughs> So dependencies come in if you installed with dash dash production. Oh, I didn't know. Wait, I have to do this one. And uh, dev dependencies are only supposed to be installed when you're in development. Cheers. <laughs> Mark, Mark set that one up good. Oh, you're just, uh, yeah. just going to die. We'll be very happy. So the idea is, is save dev is, is stuff that you don't want running in production. It's if you want, you know, like your, your test libraries, you know, a bunch of stuff that you would run to do builds, but you wouldn't run to do in production. It's not part of your runtime. You should be putting that into your dev dependencies folder. Uh, Cheers. <laughs> yeah, and that's the difference between save and save dev. All about the dependencies. <laughs> As we wrap up today's episode, we like to share pics of things that we like or found interesting that we'd like to share. Let's go around the table and share our pics for today's episode. Augustus, let's start it off with you. Sure, yeah, uh, I have two picks. One is Deco IDE. It's a new IDE that's for React Native apps. Um, and it got a little more popular because actually Airbnb acquired them. So I think it's worth checking out. Uh, it's totally open source and you know it's just like really optimized for um, building React Native apps. How do you spell that? Uh, Deco, D-E-C-O, IDE. So another one that recently I, I tweeted about was this Mocktails mixer. It's made by this company called Deep Local, um, and Google hired them to use their new Google Assistant SDK to make this uh, machine where it will take like these pumps and it will, like you use the SDK and it'll look up a recipe online, and then assuming you have all the bottles of like liquids, it will like create the mocktail that you want. And, yeah, yeah, it's like awesome. awesome. So you, you just press, yeah. you just press a button, and it'll like it'll be like, "What drink do you want?" And you're like, "Oh, I want a cherry sunrise or whatever." And then yeah, and so it, and the best part about this is um, Deep Local has open sourced the instructions and all the parts of how to make it. it costs like five hundred bucks. Which is pretty pricey, but it's like a cool project. Gus is gonna buy it for fun and happy. Obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. If, there, if we can make a cocktail version, that'd be sick. Dude, we should build this for. I'm sure you could. It'd be so, so cool. cool. So, we should have a podcast of us trying to build it. <laughs> Forty-five minutes of cursing. They said assembly time is fifteen hours. And we'll probably turn it to thirty by the time we're actually done. Or making a video that would be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, what do you have for us? Um, okay, so I have three today because I haven't been on for a couple of episodes. So um, first two are, are podcasts that I've been um, into. So the first one, actually, Ryan recommended How I Built This. Uh, he recommended it the other day, and I listened to it today. Really, really great like stories of startups. I listened to the Instacart one today. Um, I'm a big fan of Instacart, so I thought that was a really good episode. And I wanted to let you know, Ryan, that I don't know if you listened to that episode, but they talk about this new product that at the end they talk, I guess, about like something that like to share ideas of things that you built. And this, this guy was on talking about the swiping feed. So being a new father, you can connect your phone to your baby's bottle. And so while you're feeding your baby... <laughs> You can be on your phone and reading the news. So I thought maybe I'd... The other podcast is um, out of 99% Invisible. It's called Containers. It's like an eight-part miniseries on containerization. Um, it's really, really good. Uh, talks anything from like what it's like to be to work on a container ship and, uh, to, to how containerization, which is essentially a form of automation, has like transformed uh, ports around the world. So it's, it's really interesting. So I highly recommend that. The third one's kind of a fun one. Um, something that my wife and I were, were, we found last night called Jackbox TV and so it's on Apple TV and it's on like a bunch of other platforms but I was just really impressed with how easy it is to use so you like uh, at least on Apple TV you you load up the app and then you're you it's like most are trivia based but what's cool is you don't have to have an iPhone to be able to participate because it's just a browser so you just go to jackbox.tv enter your code and then you just answer these questions on your phone everyone just answers these questions on their phone whatever device they have they can you know even have like a Windows phone 
Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's. I was amazed on how responsive it is to being in a browser. Like there's there's certain questions where you have to be like the first answer, and as soon as you tap that button, like it's immediate. The response is immediate. So it's there. It's just very well done. Um, so I highly recommend it. Jackbox TV. Mars, what do you have for us? So. I don't have anything Debbie today, but so I just recently discovered that in Spotify, there's a tab called genre and moods and you can go to it and they'll have different playlists based on like what you're looking for. So there's like a focus and a productivity. There's like a happy vibes, get your day started off the right way. And I've, I definitely would recommend one of the focus or productivity ones. They're definitely useful if you're coding and need to get in like a, in a groove. The other is I positively hate flying and for anyone else out there who also hates to fly and is terrified of all the bumps and the noises, there's this new app called Sky Guru, which was built by a pilot, which will take the input from your microphone and your sensors and during the flight will respond to changes in noise and elevation and then send you a notification saying, oh, it's totally normal. You know, this is that this is happening or it will give you like a turbulence forecast before your flight. <laughs> Mars, I thought your solution was just drink before. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but this will also help. Um, so if anyone is looking for something to ease their mind, I would recommend it. Does it have a panic mode? It's like things are going bad. <laughs> You're going to die. The other thing is I don't, I'm like tempted to try it and I'm also tempted to not because if you know, like you drop 100 feet and it's like, that's not normal. I'm like, I don't want to know that. <laughs> Call your mom. <laughs> Call your mom. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see if the UX in that situation, if they've got good messaging. So. When I was growing up, uh, I, lived, I grew up in the Caribbean, so it's a lot of little islands close to each other, and whenever we were making plane rides from the other one, the thing that I would do to calm my nerves about, uh, about the plane ride, which is always like little tiny planes, is I would think about how far I was from the nearest landmass and whether or not I could swim it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds healthy. So you're like too far in the middle of anything you're Right, like but like I'm a, but I was like a pretty good swimmer. So like you know, there would be like only five minutes in the middle where I was like I couldn't make that. But then as soon as I can see the shore, I'm like I could do that. That's only three miles. I can make it. That new feature for the sky guru, I think. Yeah. <laughs> How close are you to the new? Right <laughs> Doesn't work on land. <laughs> yeah, only. Jim, yeah. what do you have for us? I have a music pick. It is Kid Koala, Music to Draw to Satellite. It is an excellent album to code to. One of my favorites so far that I've found recently. And I discovered, well, I was made a new drink over the weekend. It's called an Aviation. It is by far my favorite drink. It is gin, lemon juice, uh, creme de violet, and creme de maraschino. So it's actually a lot of lemon juice, but it's mostly gin. It is like such a complex drink. It has like flavors that overlap. It's I'll make some for you guys next time. It is by far my favorite drink. Lots of dependencies. <laughs> Lots of dependencies. Cheers. Lori, what do you have for us? I only have nerdy picks, I'm afraid. The first one is is unabashed plug. My pick is NPM5. Y'all are going to love it. It is, we've been using it internally for the last month and it's just so nice. Like not only is it a lot faster, They've just put a lot of effort into the details of making it, you know, just smoother to use and, and just the whole experience is a lot nicer. Uh, and they've just put so much work into it and I'm really, really proud of them. So I'm just unabashedly, good job, everybody. My second one is a web app that I've been using for years that I feel some people know about. It's slides.com. It is like if you're a web developer like a this is useful it'll help you put slides together and you know you can give it you can use it to give talks but also it's just the perfection of the art form of web apps it's so good every use case every edge case every corner like you know the affordances for resizing stuff and moving things around and changing fonts and when you click it always just does exactly what you want like it is just the best web app i've ever used uh, and it's sort of my gold standard of like, if I could ever make an app that's that nice, uh, that's what I'd do. And the third one is, I've been plugging it everywhere I go, uh, there's a framework called Next.js. If you are a front-end developer and you keep hearing people talking about React and you're like, yes, I would like to use this React thing, but I don't want to have to learn every single thing about build chains that's happened since the beginning <laughs> of time. Do I have to learn what Babel is? Do I have to learn what Webpack is? Next.js is, uh, it is, you know, it is the Ember or Angular of React. It's you just hit a button and it's ready to go, and you can just start writing React components, and you can figure it out later. 
you know, like every framework, in order to make things simple, it's had to make a few choices for you. So there's some stuff that you could do in a vanilla React app that you can't do in a Next.js app. But if you're just trying to get going, it is absolutely the way to go. And you know, I, I sit at the center of a maelstrom of data of, of, you know, what packages people are using. If you are not already a React developer, you, is, you need to get on the train. The train <laughs> is not leaving the station. The train is like three stations down. You need to get, you need to get a cab and get to the next station. <laughs> sort of two picks, but Derek reminded me of one, so I'm going to add three. My first pick is a thing for your iPhone. It's called Moment Lens. You can have different lenses for your phone and for your camera. So you can have like a micro um, lens or you can have like wide angle lens. Really, really cool. Uh, my wife actually bought me two of them. And so they're very, very cool for getting really cool photos. And my second pick is Lynn Clark's talk on fiber. If you really want to understand fiber, she does a really good job of like cartooning what fiber is and for React. Uh, and that was done at React Conf uh, 2017. Definitely recommend watching that. And then Derek and his wife had actually mentioned this movie called The Founder, which is all about McDonald's. It's not a documentary, it's like a story about McDonald's and how it was actually founded and how it franchised. It's a really good movie. You watched it? Yeah, I did end up watching it. Derek told me about it on Friday. I think I watched it on Saturday. and. Holy shit. It's really yeah, it's like 95% Rotten Tomato score. It's 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 good. Like it's really, really good. In my opinion, it totally is the reason McDonald's is the way it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it really defines it and it's crazy, like just to see that story told. Did you guys do like DoorDash with for McDonald's afterwards or because <laughs> I did, so <laughs> his wife was the one who donated all the money to NPR at the end, right? You're correct, yeah. Okay. She donated to NPR and a couple of foundations, but NPR was a big one. There was like two or three foundations, but NPR was one of them. So which is pretty cool. That is um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So but he wasn't even like founder technically he he franchised it if you go into the history of any major corporation it's always full of drama right there's no like that's what i was it's funny you say that like i was thinking after i watched this movie i was like they should do more of these you know kind of like whatever what do they call it's not really documentary because it's mockumentary yeah but i would love to see this on yeah like you said like big corporations the social network i want everybody in the world to think that my life is as cool as (laughs) (laughs) yes yes it's all keggers and we're throwing bottles of the wall. That's, That's exactly. Lori's already written like formulas all over our glass walls. Yeah, exactly. So before we end the episode, I want to thank Lori for being a guest on our podcast. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. That's great. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, I am Seldo on Twitter. S E L D O. So tweet at him, tell him Absolutely. how great NPM is. My DMs are open. You can complain at me. You can praise me. You can, you know, send me funny cat gifts, whatever the hell you want. I always wondered, where does that username come from? The Twitter username. Oh, man, it's so nerdy. <laughs> Good. Do yeah. tell. Do tell. Have you read any Isaac Asimov books? I've one or two. All long right. Time ago. So there's a, uh, he wrote a long series of books called the Foundation uh, books. And the character in the, found, one of the characters in the Foundation books is Harry Selden. And there was another character. Character and I, when I was, you know, 15 and picking a username for myself, I merged their names. <laughs> so it was like this super long, unwieldy, you know, eight-syllable name. And all of my friends immediately went, "We're not going to use that. That's too complicated. You're Seldo." And I was like, "Done." And uh, that's where it came from. Nice. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FrontendHH. You can follow us on Facebook as well. Any last words? Dependencies. <laughs> I almost felt like saying any last dependencies. <laughs> Cheers.